I'm moving this around because I was told the Holy Spirit shows up and the wind blows. And I'm still old school. I got a piece of paper. I don't want the wind to blow. Does it blow here? Here? Doesn't matter, right? All right, so we already have references to the old days when Jared was young and was my vicar and I was young and I was his bishop. Let me take you back 10 years further, um, maybe even further than that. And, and we'll reference a lot of old time things. So if, if, if you're 25 or under, you might want to leave now. Cause <laughs> but uh, roughly 1988, 89, uh, I'd been a pastor for five years and they elevated me in the, is the way they viewed it back in the day. Actually, they sentenced me to, to being the mission board chairman. And in our polity in the Wisconsin Synod, that means in addition to being a pastor at a local church, you take on this hobby. And my wife, who's here, would attest to this. This is the only hobby I ever really had. <coughs> Starting new churches in Wyoming, Utah, parts of New Mexico, Panhandle, Nebraska, and particularly in Colorado. So I'd been at it about six months, and I took the cutting technology of the day, uh, the overhead projector, and I, I put a little map up there of Colorado and another one of uh, Denver, and said our, our dream and vision is that the mission board within 10 years, because we were aggressive and naive, we, we hope to have churches in this many spots. At the time, we had five in the greater Denver area, six if you count Boulder, which is a universe unto itself, as we all know, but we counted it, so that was six. Uh, and we hope to have 10 or 12 or something like that. And lo and behold, some of that came true. We started when Louisville didn't work, but so get out of there. But Littleton w was a target area. Central Denver, which has been a very prosperous, good story. Um, we went out as far as Sterling, started something there. Parker and Castle Rock. And, and I would just say to you, without getting too bloody sentimental and tearing up about it, uh, I don't know what I envisioned in 1988 or 89. I just put a dot on a map. I could not have envisioned this. I wasn't here for your dedication. I haven't been your mission counselor for a couple of years now, but... Uh, just the people that are here and this facility you put together is just cool and far beyond our wildest dreams, okay? So, <clears throat> that's enough history. Jared gave me a carte blanche, said preach on whatever you want to preach. Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible, just a plug for that. A lot of times we get confused because we don't understand the Old Testament. The New Testament we seem to get, but the Old Testament we avoid. If you want some help with the Old Testament, read the book of Hebrews. It ties the Old and the New together. Maybe that's why it's my favorite book. I don't know, but just a plug. We're going to what's sometimes called the Hall of Fame of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Jared read it for you previously. Uh, hopefully this introduction helps you to get in, in, in tune with what the text is saying with where I want to go with it. <clears throat> I, I read a lot be, on airplanes because I, I spend a lot of time on airplanes. It's neither good or bad. It, it just is. And for any of you who fly, you know people don't talk on airplanes anymore, right? You're sitting somebody next to somebody for 3.2 hours on a flight from Charlotte to Denver. You might say, hmm, nice weather in Charlotte. Yep, that's it. Nothing further said until you get to Denver in most cases. So I read. You wonder who reads those magazines that's in, the, in there with a little puke bag? On air? Who reads those? Me. Do the Sudoku, crossword, read it. Got a newspaper, got the BuzzFeed, reading the phone, read. That's what I do on airplanes. So somewhere in there, because I'm on the verge of a 40th wedding anniversary, I was reading an article about creative places to go and vacation. 
and maybe you know this already, but it was news to me. You can vacation in Chernobyl. Have you seen that? Old story, 1986, nuclear incident. That's what we call it, an incident. Russian government never has been able nor willing to come clean with just how many animals and human beings died. And it took a good 30 years to get it all cleaned up. And who knows if it's cleaned up yet. But you're welcome to go there. You're going to have to camp because nobody's stupid enough to build a hotel there. But you're welcome to camp. And there are actually a few people who live in Chernobyl, so you could have some human interaction. Uh, if you're more of an adrenaline junkie, you can vacation in Iraq. Did you know that? There is still conflict going on, but you can vacation in Iraq. The feature in this particular article, you can take your bike. For some of you who are gonzo bikers, um, you can take your bike or get a bike <coughs> and bike in the deserts of Iraq. The roads supposedly are good. Make sure to bring enough water. The heat can be atrocious. My kid served there for a year. He would testify to that. It's atrocious. The biggest worry, however, we're not sure that all the IEDs are gone. Just be forewarned. Oh, what was the other one that was in there? The islands? Oh, yeah, this one that, that maybe you've heard of. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I, I was going to say Cabbage Patch, but that's a different thing. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You know what that is? They, they say it's as big as Texas, and it's floating around in the Pacific Ocean. And it's human refuse. It, it's our wood and our plywood and our steel and our fiberglass. And most of all, it is our plastics just coming together and swirling around and floating through the Pacific Ocean. And now there are attempts to dismantle this ugly mass and, and this testament to what the human race has done to God's planet, right? You can vacation on this thing, not on it literally, but you pay 10 grand and you're on a boat, a trawler-type thing, and you're helping to dismantle this thing and make it smaller than Texas for only $10,000. And if this doesn't turn you in the same direction to the Pacific, it's called the Izu Islands, not Izo. That's a coach at Michigan State. This is Izu. <clears throat> the Izu Islands, never heard of them before, but apparently you can go there. Nobody else is there. It's lush. It's akin to Hawaii, except it has no animals, very few trees. It's just the grass and some other foliage is very lush. Uh, the difficulty and the curiosity with it is that it's an active volcano, several of them, underneath the island. And, and the gas emissions are coming up constantly. So the only requirement, you don't need a permit. If you can get a boat, get somebody to take there, you can go there. The Japanese government insists only that you have a gas mask. Don't have to wear it all the time, but you need to have the gas mask in, in case the gas gets worse, okay? Now, th these are crazy things. And, and significant about this article, wherever it was that I was reading it, there were no pictures to induce you to want to go to Chernobyl or the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. <coughs> and, and with good reason, there's no pictures. Who, who'd want to go there? If you can imagine this, you can then put yourself in Abraham's sandals or whatever he wore back then. There, there were no visuals. He wasn't an adrenaline junkie and saying, you know, honey, Sarah, I'm tired of Mesopotamia. I think I had a vision from God. Let's pack up the camels, not the kids, because they didn't have kids, right? That's a big part of the story. They don't have kids. But they got servants and creators, and let's pack it all up and go 800 to 1,000 miles to the west 
and look for a different place to live. He, he wasn't looking for a vacation. He was not an adrenaline junkie. And it wasn't just a dream. God had most certainly said, you will go on a journey. And all I'm giving you is a promise. This is what's going to happen. That's it. This interaction between God and Abraham and the subsequent actions that Abraham took by faith becomes a metaphor for his entire life as a spiritual journey. And through the book of Hebrews, it becomes a metaphor, a children's object lesson, if you will, for our own walk of faith. And it gives us reason to pause for 20 minutes here and, and just say, what exactly is faith? not as we sense it or as we tend to define it in very subjective ways, but what exactly is faith? And in Hebrews chapter 11, with Abraham as a preeminent example, God defines it. We're going to look at verses 8 and 9. It's probably still up there. It's not. It's on page 8 here, 4, if you want to follow along with the verses when I read them. I, I think probably the first note to be made would be in from verses 8 and 9 that you actually do have the capability to do this. We're going to put before you some highfalutin ideals and goals, and you actually do have the capability to do this, is basically what God is saying in, in, in these verses. Uh, another flashback to the one even six years, seven years before the mission board story. 1983, I was fresh out of the seminary, and, and all I had was a few possessions, a weird little dog, and, and a great wife. And uh, I, I can't tell you what I had for breakfast this morning, but I can recount for you exactly hour by hour the first four days in Denver and, and what was, that was like. Uh, spending a few days here with Jared and four pastors who had just got out of the seminary two months ago, <coughs> three months ago, just got to the places where they're going to start or restart a church along with their wives. That was a lot of flashbacks as we sat in that room for a bunch of hours the, the last few days to 1983. July 8th, we get to town relatively late in the day, too late to unpack and move the stuff up to our third floor apartment in central Thornton. July 9th, we unpack in horrendous heat, get everything up in the third floor apartment, discern pretty quickly on. We are the only married couple in that whole building. Everybody else is single. We also likely are the only people who don't smoke weed. This is 83. It wasn't legal yet. Okay. The next day, July 10th, I'm installed in a service that uh, they still talk about in Colorado Conference lore for all the whack things that went on that afternoon. And I can share details later on. We'll let them go for right now. July 11th, all my relatives go home. I know nobody. My wife knows nobody. Uh, we don't know our way around. The call said start a church in Commerce City, North Glen Thornton. So we went driving around Commerce City. In 1983, Commerce City still looked like Commerce City. There were not nice subdivisions. There were oil refineries and trucking companies. That was about it, and a few houses. How do you start a church there? I had no list of names. I understand the terror in the hearts of these four young church planters that are here in your midst still today because uh, I lived it. I understand the terror that's been in your pastor's heart two different times in saying, first in Washington, start a church along with Amy, and that was about it, right? And then coming here and say, okay, that seemed to work out. Do it again in, in Castle Rock. Fulfill this old guy's dreams. Let's have a church in Castle Rock. And I think you probably understand it too. A, a lot of you have relocated for the sake of a job where you knew nobody 
or even if you did know somebody in town, the, the terror inherent in, in simply going to a new building or a new office within the building or the same company, it, it's absolutely mind-boggling, is it? You do not sleep. That's a little snippet of beginning to understand what Abraham's going through, along with his wife. Verses 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Again, our experiences that, that I went into great length explaining are minuscule compared to what Abraham faces. Entirely different country. Tower of Babel is in the background, so it's an entirely different language, entirely different culture. He's a herdsman by trade. That means all new watering holes, all new grasslands for all these critters in the Middle East, which is like the desert of Nevada on steroids, right? That's all he had. God says, go in that direction and I'll take care of you, promise. And we think, well, he was a great man of faith. We do not have that in Genesis chapter 12 where the story begins. There's nothing that says that he was different than anybody else. He was still a syncretist. He worshiped the true God, but he also had household gods on the side, just in case. He's a herdsman. He's not educated in the depths and the study of the mind of God. He's a simple man who someday will be incredibly influential and wealthy, but he's not there yet. And yet God says to this individual, I make a promise, I'm going to do something for you and through you, and it will be big, and he acted upon that. That's what makes him special, and that's why he's the preeminent figure in this long list of names in Hebrews chapter 11. God made a promise. Abraham was led to believe it. And verses 8 and 9 demonstrate to us that this is entirely impossible or possible for human beings, including the hundred some of us sitting here this morning. Not that we're inherently better and more capable of believing, but that God is capable of making incapable people believe his promises. And that should make you pause and think for a moment. Because if you strip away the veneer, as we'll do at the end of the sermon, and, and say, you, you would readily admit, this is a terrifying thing to attempt to be a Christian in this culture, in this context, at this time. It is terrifying, isn't it? If we're honest. How do you raise kids here? Whether single or married, young or old, how do you even hang on to your old Christian faith, much less pass it on to your children? How do you do that? How do you function in a school or in a workplace where you're the lone Christian in the room or perhaps even in the entire company? How do you find friends in a culture which is entirely tied into one another yet desperately lonely? How do you do any of this? And how do you hang on to a promise that's written on a page but for which we have no physical proof? God gives it to us kind of when he says, here's my body, here's my blood, bread and wine, you're a child of God, there's water, you're baptized, here's a book, here's words. But you've seen him face to face recently? You got a photo of heaven? 
So you're as much at risk, humanly speaking, as was Abraham. He simply issues a promise and says, I'll not only promise these things to you, but I will give you the capability through the working of the Spirit to believe that these words are true. With that in our minds, the gist of this, this the central piece is, is in the middle, where God leads Abraham and us to believe unbelievable things. This is where it gets interesting. And I'll continue to, to use personal stories because that's all I got. I don't have a church anymore. I don't have any stories I can tell about people. I, I got to tell stories about myself. So I said I like to read, right? I was in Queens, New York about a week and a half ago helping the church there. I did the usual thing. I forgot most of my toiletries. So I got to go buy some razor blades, some shaving cream, some toothpaste, some mouthwash, all the little travel things. You wonder who buys those when you see them in the grocery store? Fools like me who forget. Only it's, it, it's not the supermarket like it says outside there in Queens. Supermarket to you and me means a big Safeway or a big King Supers. And you don't even have to go there anymore. You just do-do-do, deliver, right? Or for sure you get in the express lane and it's quick. Uh, this is not that kind of place in Queens. This is old-fashioned grocery store. Your only option, gather your stuff, get in line. And here again, you can ask my wife for testimony that the, what follows is true. I kind of like going to the grocery store. I always did. I miss the old days when you were stuck in line and you could read the Inquirer. <laughs> and you may think, well, that was weird and unbelievable. But for a guy from Michigan, those are believable things. Elvis, dead in 1977 but alive in Michigan, because oftentimes they would say that. He's alive in Michigan, and I'm thinking, yeah. I lived in Michigan until 79. Might have run into him. Possible. Madonna, love child with Bill Clinton. Everybody else would say that's crazy, but Madonna's from Detroit. Entirely possible. Aliens are messing with the fluctuating gas prices. And you all would say, nah, couldn't be. But you've never been to the Upper Peninsula. You've never met the Upers. There are aliens amongst us. <laughs> this is all entirely possible. It, it is possible to believe the unbelievable is what I'm saying. To, to take it from the purely humorous to the slightly less humorous, if you were reading such a rag 10 or 15 years ago, or, or let's go back further, 25 years ago, and you were one of the few World War II vets that's left, and you read a magazine that pointed out to you, Germany and France are close allies whose economies and culture are interwoven now, right, through the European Union. Huh? Really? That's going to come about? A, a playboy, a, a wealthy playboy in New York City, his daddy earned the money and now he spends it and invests it and loses it. He's going to be president someday, right? Would, would you have believed that? 20, 25 years ago, if they wrote that about Donald Trump, closer to home, the Stones came through here, right? They played at Mile High. Uh, what was that? End of July, beginning of August. 30 years ago, if somebody had said to you, Mick Jagger will still be strutting on stage, Keith Richards will still be alive, <laughs> right? These are unbelievable things. Okay, so the little less humorous and now the serious. If a magazine or an article had suggested to you, we will have the capability soon to have life outside the womb in the form of 1.2 ounces, and we can keep that alive. 
Would, would you have believed that 20 years ago even? Even 10 years ago? God would give us such things? And, and now to set the humor aside altogether, you contemplate your faith journey. Would, would you have believed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you'd still be going to church? Seriously? You haven't had doubts about this stuff? Would you continue to believe the unbelievable? If you can set your mind in that frame, look at verses 11 to 12 again. By faith, even Sarah, who was well past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and countless as the sand on the seashore. <coughs> they were trusting God would do the unbelievable. The recent SEM graduates can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think Sarah was 65 at the time. Abraham was 75 when that promise is first issued. They wait 25 years, and the promise is reiterated several times. So he's 100 and she's 90 when the baby Isaac is actually born. And God uses this, an un unbelievable physical phenomenon, to suggest that's easy for me to do. The harder thing and the more important thing over here is the unbelievable spiritual phenomenon to lead you, Abraham, to believe the unbelievable that you're my son, spiritually, by faith. That is what faith looks like. And, and I think that we almost constantly have to keep redefining what does faith look like. This is where I pick on Margo. Is she out of the room? Okay, my grown daughter who now has granddaughter and is the spitting image of my daughter when she was age three. Vice versa. Granddaughter, spitting image, yeah, of Margo. I don't know when it was, about a month ago, we're down at their house and we're eating something, a little light lunch, and we say a prayer before we eat, and uh, my granddaughter keeps her eye open to see if everybody else has shut, her, shut their eyes while they pray and calls me out after the prayer that I had not prayed properly, exactly what her mother did about 31 years ago. Right? Because that's what faith looks like. When you pray, it's with your eyes shut. Her older brother, I forget when it was, 6th grade, 7th grade, uh, to, to just remove my mind from realities, I used to watch weird religious TV. Jimmy Swagger, Jimmy Baker. Who watched that stuff back in the day? I did. To say, well, Lutherans at least have something better than that. And I had it on. And he's watching it with me, and he's now a Wells pastor. I don't know if he still feels this way, but they're doing this. They're lifting up holy hands, and they're weaving and bobbing, and they got their eyes shut and screaming up to the skies. And he pretty much said, that's not Christian faith, is it? And this is stuck in my mind because, because as I get around and as I examine my own heart, we tend to define faith in very physiological ways. And, and what it looks like and how you go about it, especially on Sunday morning. Now, that's legitimate faith, the way that they did it at that church. How, how silly. Because God doesn't define faith in such a way. He strips away everything physiological and, and says, here's faith. I have made a promise to you, an invisible promise, that a visible entity entered this world in flesh and blood, God himself, lived and died in your place that counts for you because of him and him alone, you go to heaven. That's faith, believing the unbelievable. To wrap it up then, if you look at verses 13 to 16, 
and refers not just to Abraham, but, but to the entire litany in Hebrews 11. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things they promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So if you go back to the aliens thing, who are the aliens? The Bible would say that's us. We, in a sense, do not belong here. We're strangers here. Heaven is our home. Good old Lutheran hymn. There it is in Hebrews. We are foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. So he gives you the ability to believe things. The essence of faith is to believe the unbelievable. And ultimately, it, it is, in fact, about going to heaven. Simple as that. Some of the names, if you read Hebrews 11 later on, again, are not remarkable human beings. Rahab was a prostitute who helped them, the Israelites, accomplish God's goal of taking out Jericho and then taking over the promised land. A couple of guys who show up there, Gideon, Jephthah, from the year of the book of Judges. Not, nothing outstanding in their background necessarily, but God used them as individual leaders to keep what was left of his people on the right path. If you actually read the Bible instead of just thinking about your Sunday school stories, Abraham, Moses, and David were nothing great. Two shepherds and a guy who raised camels. <laughs> and yet they are held up as the prime examples of what it is to have faith and to act upon the promises. And then ultimately, or lastly, Isaac and Jacob, the two that I think we should most closely identify with. These are guys who were born into comfort and who had seen promises fulfilled and lived somewhat comfortably, affluently, like us. And miracle of miracles, they still kept their faith. Think about that. The others all had physiological or many other barriers to overcome. Isaac and Jacob had the same barriers as we in Metro Denver. Life's comfortable. Life's easy. The promises have always been there. and We've even seen some fulfilled. And yet in spite of all those temptations, as this set aside God, they kept faith. How do you put them all together? Rahab, Jephthah, David, Abraham, Moses... Isaac, Jacob, what do they have in common that gets them here? The scripture said they cut aside everything else, set it aside, <coughs> and they look forward to heaven. I got theories on this, and you got theories on this. Why, why is it that we don't have heaven in the discussion much anymore? Uh, I'm as guilty as any Wells pastor who ever lived. I didn't preach on heaven enough. And, and shame on me and shame on my members for not asking for more sermons on heaven because Hebrews suggests finally that's what it is all about, that we anticipate heaven. Now, why is it that we set aside? Just a few thoughts that occurred the other day, and you're free to add to this list. One might be a lack of biblical education or, or cultural infiltration. I mean, what, when you get to Revelation 21 and 22 and it says, buildings of gold, walls of gold, streets of sapphire, and a big festival, we all go, yeah, so what? We can kind of go to a restaurant like that any night of the week. doesn't mean quite as much anymore. A, a, a lack of perhaps biblical understanding of what heaven really is. Mark Twain, who was kind of a nominal Christian or at least curious about the Bible, 
through the character of Huckleberry Finn, said here's what heaven was like, and he wasn't sure he wanted to go there because all a body would do is go around with a harp and sing, and that sounded boring to Huckleberry Finn. And I suspect sometimes that's us. Somewhat related to that, these trite phrases, heaven will be whatever you need it to be. Oh, gosh. What's the best we can come up with? And I'm not making these up. I've had people say to me, I think they were kidding. These are Wells members who said, you know, I think in heaven, Coles will have a sale and it really will be a sale. Somebody actually said that to me one time. I've had guys who enjoy fly fishing. I won't do that. I can't stand a fish. You're not in any control fishing. Why would you do that? But I've had guys say to me, in heaven, we will actually catch fish. And my own confession moment here, my own portrayal of heaven is center field bleachers, Tiger Stadium, 72 degrees, a few clouds, the sun is shining, the beer for once will be cold and the hot dogs will be warm. And you know what I'm talking about. How we say, okay, you want to talk about heaven? Here's a comparison. Here's some human comparison as to what heaven might be like. <coughs> and so we don't talk about it anymore. And we realize that our, that our comparisons are trite. And I think in some ways, we, we even set aside what Karl Marx described 100-some years ago. He said, Christianity is, is just the opiate to keep the masses controlled. And he was talking specifically about the hope of heaven. Their lives are so miserable that they need some opiate to keep them at least somewhat behaved. And I think, well, we're beyond need in that now. We've figured it out. We're, we're more educated. So we don't need to talk about heaven. I've been to places and you've been to places where people still speak in heaven. When I was in New York City, I talked with some immigrants because that's a lot of the people who were filling up the churches in New York and Washington, Baltimore. Ain't so many white folk who've been around there for so long. Ain't so many long-time Americans. It's people who've actually immigrated, emigrated here, gotten in, come from different culture, whatever, think that this is great, but their life is still a struggle to survive here with the menial jobs that they get. And some of them belong to our church in New York City, our Wells Church. And they will tell you forthright, this as good as it is to be in New York, they look forward to heaven. I've been to China, and I've hung around rich people and poor people, and alike, they both realize there's something to miss here. And yeah, we've got a little bit of capitalism now, a little more freedom, life's a little bit better, but heaven's still on their radar. And I lived in Grenada, which is a third world country in what should be a first world setting. And I ministered to a guy who lives in a grass hut down by the beach illegally, but they leave him alone because he doesn't trouble anybody. And his floor is dirt, and he had his bed, and he's dying, and all he's got is the transistor radio like I had back in 1967. And he doesn't have any relatives. And the niece of a friend comes and checks on him twice. So what day? Does he have sufficient water? Does he have batteries for his transistor radio? Is he still alive? And less than a mile away from him is a gal that I visited, and she had shown interest in our church and had come around. And then I didn't see her for a while, and I checked, and I heard through local news and then found her where she was living now, hiding out from her boyfriend. Because with a, a knife and with what they call a cutlass, you and I would call it a saber, 
uh, 90 different lacerations on her body as she protected herself as he attempted to kill her. And heaven was real for her. I am not saying give up everything that you got here and you'll more appreciate the hope of heaven. I am saying from time to time in a metro setting like Denver, in a city where it's really happening and going on and people are making money and saving money and, and everything else, strip away the veneer once in a while and say, you know, it is all a veneer. I am lonely. I am fearful. I do have doubts because there is a devil and I don't know if it's all true. Strip it all away. Honestly, stand before your God and let him speak to you and say, you're not capable, but I am. You're going to believe unbelievable things. And you do end up in heaven. Preparation for the offering. There is a song to be sung on page 7, correct? Create in me.